I'm Marcus Smith. You're listening to Constant Wonder. Toward the end of World War II, a total of 425,871 prisoners of war were being held here in the United States. They were mostly Germans, over 370,000 Germans actually, but also over 50,000 Italians, almost 4,000 Japanese prisoners of war. Camps were located all over the country, but were mostly in the South. This was because it's very warm by comparison to where you'd have to have heated barracks up north, and that's expensive. Every state, with the exceptions of Vermont, North Dakota, and Nevada, had at least one prisoner of war camp. At California's Fort Ord, some prisoners dug a tunnel and nearly escaped. They had burrowed about 120 feet before they were discovered. Another tunnel at an Arizona camp was longer, and 25 prisoners did escape. There are stories all over the place that are of interest. Michigan had a fort where there are 26 German graves. Prisoners of war did die. In an Oklahoma camp, a prisoner was murdered by fellow German prisoners. Sometimes this violence broke out because there were fiercely loyal Nazis. They resented those who were disloyal to their nationalist cause. But who really knows all the reasons behind a murder? Sometimes we never know. In Wisconsin, prisoners worked at local cherry orchards. Farm work was often compensated and living accommodations for the farming prisoners, often better than elsewhere in the system. In the state of Washington, there's a story about a camp riot that broke out when black American soldiers realized they were receiving worse treatment than the incarcerated Germans or Italians. Stories like this are, are told. They're quite dramatic. Sometimes you have to read between the lines. For example, a simple statistic, 90% of Italian POWs across the country pledged to help the United States. They volunteered to, to serve in an Italian unit called the Italian Service Unit. They worked on farms and hospitals at arsenals, army depots, and they too received better housing, uniforms, and pay. Well, in the middle of all of these stories, there appears to have been at least one romance across the international divide, this between an American and a German, and not just across that divide, but it was a romance also across the racial divide. That is the story we're now going to focus on, and we're going to hear it from a journalist who pursued a lead rather tenaciously, I think, until that whole picture came into focus about what really happened in the lives of Eleanor Powell and Frederick Albert. I'm delighted to introduce you right now to Alexis Clark. She's a journalist who also works on the faculty of the Columbia Journalism School. She's author of Enemies in Love, a German POW, a black nurse, and an unlikely romance. Alexis Clark, welcome to Constant Wonder. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. There had to be a time when, as you stumbled into this story, you started saying, there's really something here and I might find more. What was the critical mass where you suddenly said, I'm going for it? <laughs> well, it, it really started several years ago. I was having just a casual conversation with my mother, and she informed me that we were distant relatives of a man named Colonel Charles Young, who was the highest ranking African-American in the Army until his death in 1922. So I just started reading about blacks in the military, and I gravitated towards World War II history. And I was reading a book called G.I. Nightingales. It was all about World War II nurses. And they had this one chapter about black women who served. And literally one sentence changed everything. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. It said, the war holds fond memories for Eleanor Powell, who met and later married a German prisoner of war interned in Arizona. And I thought, wait, German prisoner of war, Arizona, black nurses, stop. I have to find out what happened. I have to unpack this story. And that's exactly what I did. I don't even know where you would begin. Uh, you've got a couple of names. Uh, where do you go as your very first step? Yes. First, I needed to see if they were alive. So I checked records. And of course, I eventually got their death records, which was depressing. But I discovered they had two sons. So then I looked for their contact information. And eventually, I connected with the youngest son, and that started a years-long interview process where I would visit and he would tell me his memories. And then I would ask him, okay, who's alive that knew your parents? And then I'd reach out to them. 
How does that even go over when you have to make the first contact? Do you, is it with a little bit of... <laughs> it's awkward. I was going to say. <laughs> what do you but say? But as a journalist, you get over those cold calls. I mean, luckily with emails, sometimes you can preface that first. They, they um, have a heads up before you just call out the blue. But sometimes there were relatives. That's all he had was a phone number. So I just had to work my way into some preamble. And, and eventually we would have a conversation. Yeah, I'm just imagining this, that you're saying, hello, I'm wondering if you are the child of that particular Eleanor Powell and was, are you half German? I mean, and and he's saying, what's going on here? Are you from the FBI? Right. Well, first I sent a letter, an old fashioned letter with all of my information. um, So that person could Google and and see my track record as a journalist. So I was uh, good move by myself. Very good move. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that helped too. And I had been a magazine editor for a number of years. So the fact that they could actually see a footprint, I think that obviously they were more comfortable talking to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's find out who these two individuals were. And uh, shall we start with Eleanor or with the prisoner of war, Frederick? (laughs) Sure, Eleanor. Sure, Eleanor Powell. Um, She was from Milton, Massachusetts. That's a progressive suburb outside of Boston. Um, And she had a a, a very stable, happy childhood despite... um, having grown up during the depression. Um, and this is a time where everyone was suffering, but obviously with the history of African-Americans, they would always suffer more, um, higher unemployment, higher poverty, but that wasn't Eleanor's story. Um, her father served in the first war and met her mother and they married and moved to Milton where his family was already established as one of the first African-American families. And he worked as a clerk at the Boston Boston Customs Building, but he also was an elevator engineer. So there was stability and this wonderful community that embraced this family. So she grew up, uh, we know Boston's history, There's has a complicated history with racism and, and progressive politics, but Eleanor was largely shielded from that. So she went to white schools, white friends, um, and had extracurricular activities. And, and, and grew up in a congenial environment. And it really wasn't until she decided she wanted to enlist in the U.S. Army Nurse Corps where she really got a taste of Jim Crow segregation. So you were able to figure out that she got surprised by what life is like away from the bubble that she had been raised in. Correct. Correct. Her She shared stories. Um, and again, she also, the book I was reading where it gave me that factoid about Eleanor, she had contributed some quotes. So I knew in her words that segregation shocked her. And I think a big part of it is that some people think that it was just in the deep South, but it was all across the United States, Arizona included, and the military also adhered to segregation. So that, although you're familiar and you know it exists until you are confined to it, um, I, I think it's, it's very shocking. And particularly if you think about the premise of World War II, fighting for democracy, uh, if you're African-American and you're segregated, um, there's some hypocrisy that's hard to get over. Yeah, some cognitive dissonance, I think they call it, you know. Yes. So she arrives in the Army, and I understand you explain that if you're a black nurse in the Army— you can try to get a good assignment, but there's some discrimination in just where you're posted. That's that's true. So there was a quota system. And first, there was a lot of hesitancy um, even having black nurses in the military. Unfortunately, this is just an era where um, they wanted that exclusively to white nurses. Um, they were questioning the abilities, um, the experience, and black nurses prove themselves that, you know, we have nursing degrees and we've done our rotations and we're just as competent. And many of them had already worked in hospitals. So eventually with pressure from civil rights groups um, and finding advocates and FDR and and Eleanor Roosevelt, they're finally admitted black women into the U.S. Army Nurse Corps um, in 1941, but just a small group, only 56 nurses. Um, And so Eventually, uh, those nurses, only 500 would would serve in total, but they were given primarily two assignments. They were either on at segregated bases where there were black soldiers, 
or they were tasked to take care of German POWs. Hmm. That was it. Hmm. So I don't even know what a plum job would be if you're – it's wartime. You just take the assignment that's given you. But there is evidence that there was a discriminatory policy or maybe just a behavior that sent black nurses to these two locations. It was definitely, I would say, a, a behavior. And eventually, they, with enough um, complaints, uh, in early 45, they would rotate black nurses out. But basically, what was told to Eleanor's unit is that there were white nurses uh, at POW Camp Florence in Arizona, and the military was concerned about the fraternization that was taking place between the German POWs and the white nurses. So they thought that they would replace those unit of nurses with Eleanor's group. They figured um, a group of black nurses, there wouldn't be temptation, let's just send them in. And so they would make those swaps uh, whenever possible. Um, Now again, given how many more white nurses there were, they absolutely had to take care of POWs. But if the switch could be made, the military would, and they would send white nurses to the front lines and the black nurses would go to the POW camps. So that's how Eleanor made her way to POW Camp Florence. So if I heard you right, you were saying that the black nurses went to POW camps because the military assumed that they could control socialized uh, interactions. They could they could somehow prevent mixing. That was definitely told to Eleanor's unit, but a larger reason is that it was a secondary, um, a less prestigious assignment. And so that was the mentality. Well, you give that to the black nurses um, and let's put our white nurses um, in hospitals to take care of American soldiers, the allied forces on the front lines. So it was just, it really was um, a secondary, uh, second class position, really. That's that's really what that assignment meant. You know, we live in a time right now where there are so many different displaced individuals, and wartime will often do that. You've got refugees uh, uh, today. You've, you've got uh, people trying to cross borders. I'm thinking back to Eleanor's day, and here she is, raised in Massachusetts. I would think there's, there's culture shock enough going into the military. That's a different culture altogether. And then from Massachusetts to Arizona, that's a leap. I mean, that's a different world, you know? <laughs> yes, and it was very isolated. I mean, these camps um, primarily were in the South and the West, where there's lots of room and you don't have the urban congestion. But POW uh, Camp Florence was really in the middle of nowhere. So when they did get the opportunity for um, an hour and a half a commute to Phoenix, um, unfortunately, they faced discrimination there. So um, they were turned away from lunch counters. Uh, if they wanted to go shopping, they couldn't try on anything. Now, they could hold the dress up to them. But these were such slights. And these are women who were in military uniform and were being discriminated against. So she felt um, frustrated uh, humiliated and degraded. And she wanted to be a nurse. That's why she went to nursing school. She really wanted to serve. Um, and so morale, there was a, that became an issue for many black nurses during well, the war. I, I think I've got some sense for what might have been her mindset and her situation now. And so I think we bring in the Frederick story and we get his <laughs> background because they're going to meet, I think, at a mess hall. Uh, but I'm getting ahead That's of true. I'm getting ahead of things here. Who's Frederick? So Frederick Albert, um, he's German, uh, born in Alpen, German, Germany, which is now part of Poland, and he was raised in Vienna. And his father um, was a very successful engineer and developed these fireproofing bricks and concrete materials. Um, he also served in the Great War, but he grew up in a very privileged environment, unlike his father. Um, Frederick really wasn't a business-oriented man. He was a painter. He listened to jazz. He liked art. So he was grew up rather estranged from his dad and, and felt very isolated. But he was drafted in, uh, to the, into the Army. And we don't know a lot, hardly anything about his capture, except that it was in Italy. Um, and he told his sons that he tried to escape on a bike and had flat tires, but then the Americans... Uh, captured him on a street. So that's all we know about that capture. But anyway, he was shipped 
uh, to the United States and made his way to uh, Camp Florence. And there's this really funny scene, um, and I learned about this, his first encounter with Eleanor um, from his sister, who I had the pleasure of interviewing for a number of years, that he met Eleanor in the mess hall and immediately approached her and said, you should know my name. I'm the man who's going to marry you. (laughs) And I thought... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was pretty bold, but that is, he literally proposed the minute he saw her um, and later would share that he was under a spell from day one. It was love at first sight for him. You got this from his sister who presumably is living in Europe. She passed away two years ago, but I first met her um, in 2012. And so for several years, um, I would fly back and forth to Munich and, um, I would interview her and her daughter, Christina, would translate. And then I had a translator here who would then translate that interview just to make sure that I am Christina captured everything because English is not her first language. But anyway, I got to meet his sister, Charlotte, because I needed to know about his background and how he grew up. And so she knew about that story of how they met. And then his children knew. So I heard it from both sides of the family. Well, that's good because then you have it corroborated from two different sources. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Well, uh, let's get to the romance, shall we? I don't even know how this is possible in the prisoner of war (laughs) camp because there are protocols and there are guards and there is surveillance and I just don't even know how you can yeah know all of that yes all of that well you know and and there was a lot of there were complaints actually um from local uh residents in Arizona that they just thought that they would see POWs with the guards around town and laundromats and they thought it was just way too casual and so there were complaints that the security was lax so you know, when they were on that camp, um, it wasn't just constant oversight. So he would have um, duties in the mess hall, but he would also volunteer in the hospital because he was a low-level medic. Um, even though he told his sons he was a paratrooper, I found all his discharge papers, um, and he actually was a low-level medic, and a family member confirmed that. So he would volunteer in the hospital and that's where he would get to see Eleanor. And, uh, you know, after a few flirtations, uh, escalated and then they would find, um, unoccupied rooms. (laughs) And that's where the romance really developed. Yeah. Um, and what are the risks of being found out? Uh, I would imagine that she could be disciplined and that he would be maybe moved to another camp. Uh, there, there's all kinds of things if they were found out. Absolutely. And I thought about this too. I'm like, weren't they afraid? At, I mean, I don't know if it's just youthful rebellion or what, but really they were breaking the law on two fronts. I mean, she as a nurse in the army, she was an officer in the army, and he obviously is classified as the enemy. He is a prisoner of war. He is a German soldier. So that's already a conflict there. But they were also breaking racial laws. Jim Crow was the law. And it was actually against the law in Arizona. Um, That was one of the states where interracial marriages were banned. Um, So they were, and of course we know Germany's take on this. So they were not only enemies as far as the United States and Germany at war, but they were both defying the laws of their respective countries um, where interracial relationships were illegal. Yeah. Now, you told the mess hall story where he approaches her and says, you should know my name because I'm going to marry you. Mm -hmm. He was smitten. I mean, that's an easy story to tell. He was just smitten, love at first sight. Did you Were you able to figure out what made him of interest to her eventually? Because I don't think she was smitten at first sight. No, but I th- I can see why. I mean, just by looking at them, I, I, I at some point, I'm sure there was physical attraction on both their parts. They were both very attractive people. But I also think it, it was much deeper. I think they represented much larger things. I mean, here was a man who didn't grow up with any much love in his life. He was not close to his father, um, wasn't around much, and got captured. He didn't know what he's doing this life. 
And so he meets this woman um, and he becomes excited again. There's something I, I, I want to I live for this woman. And I think she, on the other hand, who had been degraded by Jim Crow and she's twiddling her thumbs at this POW camp. And here's this man showering her with attention. And so um, I think it was a flirtation. But eventually they literally just fell in love and um, friendship and, and first and then lovers. But I, I, I do think they both were seeking solace and, and they found that in each other. Any language, Barry? I mean, he presumably spoke to her in English. I don't think she would have known any German. Correct. He was fluent in English, which was not uncommon for upper class German families to, um, to be bilingual. Now, tell me a little bit more about the laws that were against uh, mixed marriages. There were places in the United States where they could have gotten married had he not been a prisoner. Sure, there were. But it's funny because um, eventually where they, when they did in 1947, it was still in, in New York, it was still 20 years before the Loving v. Virginia decision, the Supreme Court decision of 1967, that... Um, stated that all of these laws in various states that deem interracial marriages um, that bar them, that that's unconstitutional. But when they met in 1944, um, if they had decided to marry in Arizona, that would have been against the law in Arizona. They would have had to have gone to New York or Massachusetts or some of the states where interracial marriages were legal. But when they met at the time, they, they were not in Arizona. Is the picture very clear for you of the, the, the season of the end of the war and his release from a, a camp and what happens to a POW? You got, I Presumably you get sent back to Germany. You go home. That's correct. So by law, they, they must return home. Um, and that was the case with Frederick. And over a period, I believe the research says most of them, between 1946 and 48, that's when the bulk of all of the POWs um, were returned to Europe. Um, so Frederick and Eleanor didn't want to didn't want to leave each other. They wanted to spend the rest of their lives together. So they came up with the most unlikely and, and insane and crazy and risky plan to do the one thing that would connect them forever, and they conceive a child. And in their mind, that would be the quickest way for Frederick to be able to return to the United States because he would have a son, um, well, they didn't know at the time, but a child to support. And so that's what happens. Um, they conceive a child. He goes back to Europe. He has to spend time at a POW camp in England then get his affairs in order once he makes his way back to Germany and Vienna. And Eleanor returns home unwed and pregnant with the German POW's baby. That sounds like a cliffhanger. And we, we may as well take a radio break right here. <laughs> We're going to get the full story of what happens after the war as we continue our conversation now with Alexis Clark. She's a journalist and author of Enemies in Love, a German POW, a black nurse, and an unlikely romance. Stay tuned to Constant Wonder. pleasure to have you listening to Constant Wonder today. I'm Marcus Smith, and it's a delight to have with us right now Alexis Clark. She's author of Enemies in Love, a German POW, a black nurse, and an unlikely romance. Alexis, you've told the story so well, setting uh, this all up for, for marriage. we got to get him married somehow. He's in Europe. <laughs> She's going to have a baby back home, I guess, uh, with her parents. Is she Has she moved in with her parents? So she has to move back home, and her father um, by then was already deceased. He actually uh, died right before she enlisted. Um, he had hypertension and complications to that. I mean, the medications that we have now just weren't available then. So you would have people in their late 40s and early 50s uh, pass away from those conditions, and that's exactly what happened to her father um, as well as her mother not too long after. But she returns home. And of course, her mother is not pleased, but eventually she realizes that her daughter needs her support. So she has a baby 
And in the meantime, uh, she enlists the help of her friends and her sisters to write letters to the State Department and uh, the consulate in Vienna that we have the funds. Um, can we please have the father of my child? Uh, can he enter the United States? He will not be a burden on the government, but this is what we want. And so that's exactly what happened. It worked. And he made his way over. And I think it was June 19th. 1947, he arrived, and just a few days later, they went to the courthouse in Manhattan and got married. Happily ever after, right? <laughs> well, not exactly, but they did make it. They absolutely did make it. But once they married, you know, it was no longer the secret romance. They were a mixed race couple in post World War II, and a lot of people were not accepting of their union. Do you think? So do you he, think they went into this kind of naively, thinking that we, absolutely we're going to just coast <laughs> on our love for each other, and the world will be fine? And then the wake-up call comes, or multiple wake-up calls, as they're rejected right and left. They are multiple wake-up calls, so they decide that they're going to um, try their luck in Boston. Um, Eleanor's mother, um, she passes away. They. The sisters sell the house. Um, uh, Eleanor and Frederick try to start a life in Boston. They can barely find places that will rent to them. Um, this is just the reactions of neighbors don't want to live next to them, and they'll threaten to leave, so the landlords are like, no. And there's a lot of anti-German sentiment right after the war, so he struggles um, with employment. So Eleanor comes up with the idea, okay, let's move to Germany. Um, you know, I don't want you to regret this decision. You are, um, you're supposed to take over your father's corporation. Maybe we can have a life there. And so he basically nicely tells her, you don't know about Germany. I don't think this is a good idea. Um, but she convinces him, okay, can we just, can we give it a try? And he says, listen, we'll give it a year. That's all we'll give it. And if it's, if we're miserable, we have to return. And so that's the deal. And so they move to Germany, and they move in with his parents. Um, and the mother is not thrilled with his cho choice. And I'm saying that very diplomatically. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it doesn't does it last a full year? <laughs> I mean, uh... it, it it does. It actually it it lasts um, a little over a year and a half. Um, and their second son is born, but he's not happy. Uh, working for his father. Um, Eleanor does not get along with her mother-in-law, who does not make her welcome at all. And the community does not know what to make of Eleanor. Um, this is a town that's hasn't seen a lot of African-Americans, if ever. And so she feels very isolated and ostracized. And so they decide this is not for us and we need to return to the United States. And that's what they did. You know, how do you go through all of this and not suddenly just uh, give up on all humanity? I mean, I'm just wondering, they were very idealistic lovers, and they expected that that would carry them through. But at some point, you got to say, it's not working in Germany, it's not working in the United States, there's not a place on the planet that's going to see us as, um, what's the word, normal? We're, we're just not a normal right. couple. Well, you know, I, I think they were naive, obviously, but they were so deeply in love and they were um, committed to each other and they wanted to keep their family together. So they moved a lot, which was obviously very difficult for everyone, but particularly the children. But um, when they returned to the United States, they realized, here we go again. So they have problems enrolling their oldest son in school. The principal says this is in Philadelphia suburbs. And uh, you're better off in the black school, which was not near their home. And so she has to deal with that. And uh, it's just all these forces against them. But they get a break. Um, he attends baking school and gets a job opportunity at Pepperidge Farm in Westport, Connecticut. And so they move to Connecticut. And eventually, he's rising up the ranks and eventually becomes a vice president but they find a community, a community that will accept them. And it's called Village Creek. It's still in exi existence. And it's um, called a prejudice-free zone. It was founded by World War II veterans who wanted 
waterfront properties but couldn't afford uh, some of the ritzier places out in the Hamptons or other places near Greenwich. And it literally was in their covenants. Uh, they were a prejudice-free zone. All people are welcome. And that's where Eleanor and Frederick settled. You mentioned his work as a baker, that he gets training as a baker. And that calls to mind a, a little episode or two clear back in the POW camp. Wasn't he doing something with bacon back then, too? And not with bacon, but with That's, baking, I should say. <laughs> yeah, yes, no, you're correct. Um, he was uh, very much into baking. He learned baking from his mother. But at the POW camp, he made uh, breads and sometimes would teach classes. There were, you know, recreational things going on at these camps. And sometimes he would teach some of the nurses, uh, give them a demonstration in something. But he would he made Eleanor apple strudel, Um when he was at the POW camp and it's, and I actually contacted Pepperidge Farm. I said, is this, is the apple strudel Frederick's recipe? And they couldn't confirm that it was his, but what they could confirm is that he was head of the experimental bakery when that dish was created. (laughs) So we can connect the dots, (laughs) but I'm pretty sure it's probably his. So he wins her over not just because he's dashing in appearance, but because he can do some German home cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, I would imagine that unless these people have written autobiographies, unless there's, you know, their their first person accounts, you had to go through the people who knew them. Did you ever find anything that was just like a journal or a story that they left behind of their own making? You know, they had, Eleanor was um, a scrapbooker. And so she had all these beautiful photos and she would tape down some letters But she glued them, actually not taped them, she glued them down. And so you could not release them. I mean, I I wanted a professional look at them. It was just impossible. There was handwritten and some were smudges. So I was able to, you know, figure out some sentences, but there was never one beautiful journal or just hard copy letter that I could hold. Everything was from interviewing their children, their friends, and their neighbors, um, and I managed to, um, when I first wrote about this for the New York Times, uh, a nurse who served with Eleanor, who was still alive, read my story, and she was able to contact the son, and then I met her. So I actually met someone who served with Eleanor. Wow. So uh, they they were married, what, till death do they part? Yes, till death do they part. It was almost more than 50 years, in fact. Wow. Um, yeah, they made it. That's what's so beautiful about this story. They made it. Um, And I I always say this, racism didn't win. Um, They were up against it for most of their relationship, but they beat it. Yeah. What a remarkable story and what remarkable people. Have you you remained in contact with the, the, the children, the two boys? Um, the youngest son, the oldest son, Stephen, um, early on, um, didn't really want to participate. We had one interview and, uh, he found it to be triggering and just didn't want to rehash, um, those memories. So unfortunately, um, I didn't get to interview him the way I wanted to, but, uh, Chris, oh gosh, countless interviews. Um, we still keep in touch and, and, um, and a number of other family friends I'm still in touch with, as well as uh, the German side of the family. Although Frederick's sister, Charlotte, uh, passed away, I'm still in touch with um, Christina, her son, her daughter. Well, okay, this could be a heartwarming story, a story of people taking on social challenges and and coming off uh, victors in the end and having a great marriage. But there's, you've written the book and you've put it, you know, in these pages now where people can read it. What do you suppose the, the long-term value is of documenting this whole story? Well, I'm, I love history. And just off the bat, I knew, uh, I knew about the Tuskegee Airmen and some of the tank battalion of, of World War II, but we really didn't hear about black women who served in the U.S. Army Nurse Corps. So I also wanted to uncover um, that story and delve into um, how hard it was for them to enlist um, and understand why only 500 served when almost 10,000 tried. Unfortunately, they were rejected. Um, so this is just part of a larger story of, of race in this country. And, and we should know, we should know as much history as possible because it does kind of explain where we are in certain situations today. Um, so I, 
I love that it's a love story, but I also packed this book with a lot of history. Um, so we can put the love story in context. Yeah, and you've done it so well. It's a beautiful story, and uh, I'm just delighted we, we could hear it from you directly. You're the one who did all the footwork. Uh, <laughs> how, many years, <laughs> how many years were you at this? Oh, my goodness. So I, I started really, uh, really looking into this work in 2012, and then my feature for The New York Times came out in 2013. And after a few months after that, that's when I got a book deal. So it took me several years, but this book came out in 2018. So it was I, at least six years, I'd say, from start to finish. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's great work and a great opportunity for us here on the show. Alexis Clark, thank you so much. Thank you. Alexis Clark with us. She's author of Enemies in Love, A German POW, A Black Nurse, and An Unlikely Romance. Some of the great stories of wartime hinge on the courage and resilience of the throngs of people who found themselves incarcerated in prisoner of war camps, concentration camps, and in our own American history in Japanese-American internment camps that dotted the Western landscape during World War II. We're all set to tell you about one group of Japanese-American teenagers detained behind fences who broke through those barriers using high school football as their vehicle. We'll be right back with that on Constant Wonder. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Life can be complicated enough when you're 17, but it can hardly be more complicated than being a 17-year-old and Japanese-American and locked far from your home in some internment camp on the frigid and windy plains of Wyoming with a world war raging in the backdrop. Your family is one of 120,000 Nisei treated as quasi-enemies. Top that off with a looming expectation that you're going to be joining the armed forces to defend the very country that has locked you up. With all of that going on to get you down, at least there was football. I had a chance to visit with Bradford Pearson, author of The Eagles of Heart Mountain, a true story of football, incarceration, and resistance in World War II America. Listen now to the part of our conversation that focused on the remarkable high school football team that cruised to an undefeated season in 1943. And we also talk about the complexities of life in the internment camp and the decisions these boys then had to make about serving in the armed forces. It's really a remarkable story. Give it a listen now. Basically what happened was they, they got to camp and there were only three players on the Eagles team out of the 40 kids that tried out that had ever played high school football before. One was a boy named Babe Namora, and he was really the anchor of the team. He was a starting running back at Hollywood High School in Los Angeles. He was just an all-around incredible athlete, so whether it was basketball, baseball, track, football. Later in life, he became a scratch golfer. Everything about Babe was fairly incredible, uh, not only as a Japanese-American athlete, but as uh, an athlete in general. So the the team really sort of galvanized around him the coaching staff for the at the camp, one coach was a white coach from Wyoming, and the other coach was a Japanese-American uh, man from Los Angeles. And they sort of came together and brought different skills. The white coach, basically, uh, he helped schedule games and pretty quickly got out of the way for the X's and O's. And this coach named, uh, his, they call, just called him Tubby. Was, he was from Los Angeles and he had played junior college football um, in Los Angeles, which at the time was, it was a really big deal. And he basically brought an offensive scheme that was unlike anything that the folks in Wyoming and Montana at that time had really dealt with before. He realized pretty quickly that all the players on his team, all the Eagles, were going to be really outsized by the teams in Wyoming and Montana. So he figured if we put in a quick offensive scheme, we do a lot of end arounds, we do some trick plays, and we just utilize our speed, that will be the way that we can literally get around these other teams. We're not going to be able to smash right through them. We're not big enough to sort of hold folks at the line and, and run a lot of running plays. So... You know, we're going to we're going to throw the ball a lot more than folks usually did in 1943 and 1944. And, and we're just going to try to run these guys off the field, which is what they did. 
<laughs> I'm having memories going back to uh, you know uh, my college days when Steve Young was here at BYU, and it, we, all the talk was, "Why are we doing this passing game thing? You know what? The passing game. Where did that come from? You know." <laughs> but you're saying they they had to do that. Yeah, and that was you know you look at back at the, at the records of football in Wyoming has always it, it's it's always been a popular sport, but if you look at the the scores back then, you know the usual score would be. 14 to 7 or 7 to 6 or you know 10 to 6 things like that but the eagles just said look we're not going to be able to we're, we're just we're just not going to be able to play that kind of grind out game so we're going to have to try something different and that was it, it was reflected in the scores there were times that they would score 25 points it score 60 points against a team from montana and especially even in scrimmages they were putting up 45 points uh in a scrimmage so it was just um you know, I, I went back through the records to try to figure out just how, you know, just how good the Eagles were. And, and there's actually a fantastic website that I can't, uh, you know, so much of the book is based on, there's a, it's a football website called Wyoming football. And it's put together this guy by this guy named Patrick Schmidt, who basically made it part of his life's work to try to chronicle every football game in Wyoming state history. So <laughs> Uh, it's it's a really incredible resource, and he I would I would go back through there and just see there were times where the Eagles scored sixty points, and and nobody in the state would touch that many points for for years. I think it was four or five years. Nobody even came close to putting up that many points. So they really were sort of a singular force in not only in Northwest Wyoming but across across the state, and they had a hard time scheduling games because of it. So a game there at the camp would bring enough people from the community roundabout and the you know the the to cheer on the the Wyoming teams and at, at times the the presence of all those people constituted maybe one of the largest villages one of the biggest towns in all of Wyoming yeah, yeah so um you know as soon as Hart Mountain the camp opened at about it opened with about 12,000 people in it and as soon as it opened, it became the third largest city in the state of Wyoming. So, uh, you know, Wyoming still to this day isn't incredibly densely populated, but uh, especially back then, dropping 12,000 people anywhere meant that you had a, a, a fairly large community. And then the first couple games, especially that first season, would bring four or 5,000 people from the camp to watch the games, which... You know, especially if you take a town like Lovell, Wyoming, um, where uh, the, they they played the kids from Lovell a lot in different sports. You know, Lovell was two thousand people. So uh, as soon as they the teams from Lovell would show up in camp, they'd immediately be surrounded by five thousand Japanese Americans lining the field, which is you know probably bigger than any crowd they've ever been a part of, and it's bigger than any community some of those kids may have ever been in. So it was really sort of a singular experience, I imagine, for them as well to get sent into this camp just to play this football game. Getting sent in is probably is, isn't the right terminology, but going to this camp to to play this game and then all of a sudden be surrounded by more people than you've ever seen in your entire life had to be a had to be an experience that those kids didn't forget either. Yeah, I think the word that we use these days is epic. You yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I mean, you have to think about, you know, these folks that are, you know, 16, 17-year-old kids that are in small communities a- across Wyoming that are going in and they're seeing the barbed wire and armed guards and the armies there. And all of a sudden, you know, in a lot of these communities, they, they had maybe never seen a, an Asian American in their entire lives, depending on what what you know, how small their town was or, or how diverse it was. So I, you know, I didn't want this book to be sort of a both sides of the story kind of book, but there were times when I sort of spared a thought for those kids and thought, wow, that must've been something, you know, a, a truly once in a lifetime memory for them too, to be in this situation and say, how did we get here? Yeah. Now, now this Babe Nomura you were talking about, he's the quarterback, he's one of the, the central player, but he had a lifelong friend in one of the players, fellow that went by Horse, uh, you got Babe and Horse. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Babe and Horse. So Horse, um, you know, Babe was sort of the city kid. Babe grew up in Hollywood and all of his friends were from L.A. And Horse grew up uh, the son of strawberry farmers in what is now Silicon Valley, but then was just all farmland in the Southern San Francisco Bay area. So he grew up in places like Sunnyvale and Mountain View and Gilroy, California, and they became fast friends. They, they came from two totally different worlds. You know, uh, 
George said throughout his whole life that if if he had never gotten sent to camp, he would have spent his whole life just being a strawberry farmer and moving from plot of land to plot of land, trying to find fertile land for his family's strawberries. And then he gets sent to this camp and, you know, he, he meets Babe and they become friends for the, the rest of their lives for, for the next 70 years, they're friends until they both die. So, uh, but yeah, horse, uh, you know, his given name was George, uh, but he got the nickname horse because before everybody got sent to Harp Mountain, after they were pulled from their homes, a lot of folks got sent to Santa Anita racetrack uh, in the Los Angeles County area. And every morning he would get up and go for a run around the horse track. And some of the old timers <laughs> sort of ribbed him and said, what do you think you are, a horse? And then the rest <laughs> of his life, he was just known as horse. So, <laughs> Well, uh, we need to talk about a very important word in your subtitle, the word resistance. And this has to do with the draft. And I, I don't know. I'm embarrassed to say it, I guess. I, I Where have I been? Uh, to think that they would have drafted soldiers from among these camps just seems like insult to injury. Yeah, well, you're you're not alone in that. In that, uh, when I first started researching in the book, I, I didn't know the depths of of what the War Department was doing beyond the camps and within the camps. And uh, basically, as soon as the the camps were established, the War Department was trying to find ways to, you know, dis- despite um, saying that these Japanese Americans were quote unquote too dangerous to live on the West Coast. The War Department was trying to find ways to get them into the army to fight in Europe. So pretty quickly, um, the camps opened in 1942. And then by the spring of 1943, the War Department was trying to get volunteers out of the camps. And that didn't go over well um, at Heart Mountain or any of the other camps. And pretty quickly, the War Department realized that they were going to have to, if they wanted Japanese Americans to fight, they might have to draft them straight from the camps. And that led pretty quickly to a, a really organized draft resistance movement at Heart Mountain. And it wasn't because the the men there didn't want to fight for the United States. It was, it was quite the opposite in that they said, we will absolutely volunteer. We will go, we will fight. And you know, we're, we are Americans and that's the country that we want to defend. But you can't expect us to do that while you're also saying that our families are disloyal to America and keeping them behind barbed wire. But the War Department, you know, and and the federal government refused to close the camps. So, um, you know, a lot of men, a lot of Japanese American men did uh, go to their draft physicals and got on a boat and went and fought bravely in in Italy and France. But a lot of folks resisted the draft and, and were charged and convicted for that draft resistance um, basically by, you know, for saying you, you, we will gladly fight, but you just have to make sure that we are full Americans and the federal government refused to do that. And, and you know, their loyalty was really, uh, became clear after they got out of jail for their draft resistance. Many of them rejoined the army and fought in Korea and some fought in Vietnam too. So, you know, it, it wasn't, it, they weren't empty promises. Were, were you ever able to connect the dots in such a way that one of the actual players on the Eagles team was showing resistance when the, when the draft came? Yeah, that was, you know, I, I was hoping that I would be able to find someone to sort of tie together these two threads of the book. And, and there was one player, his name was Tezo Matsumoto. And he played on the Eagles for the first season. It was sort of lightly used, but he was a, a great athlete. And then when the draft came, he just said, "No, I'm not. I'm not going to do that." It's pretty quickly. He didn't. He didn't need much convincing. He just said, "Our our rights are being withheld from us," and he refused to go to his physical. Um, and then he, he basically federal government came in and, and rounded up all these folks who were draft resistors. And he was tried and and convicted and was sent to federal penitentiary in Washington State. And you know that's that's the kind of story where you just have to say, you know, I've 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 been a 17, 18 year old boy myself, and that was the kind of thing where, when I was writing this, I kept asking myself, you know, I, I don't know what I would have done in that situation. I don't know what I would have done as an eighteen year old presented with this requirement from the War Department and from your your government to show your loyalty while your family was still being behind uh, being kept behind barbed wire. And I, I don't know if 
I, I, I don't know where my, my bravery would have taken me, whether it would have been to be a resistor or, or to, to go to war, which is a different kind of bravery. Um, so I, I'm, I was, I was excited to be able to tell Tezo's story a little bit in this book too. I want you just to paint a picture of the place a little bit. I know we've talked people and sports and uh, competition and small town America. and we've, we've been all over the map here. But this place that you've been to, it's really out of the way. And what is it? Sagebrush? High desert? Yeah. All that. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it, it's in this corner of, of northwest Wyoming that was so isolated for millennia that um, you know, it had been, it, it had been a piece of land that had been passed over by pretty much every other settler on their way West, you know? So the Bighorn basin is, uh, a really inhospitable place to, <laughs> to try to build a community. And that was where they put all of these camps. So whether it was a, um, a drained swamp in, uh, Arkansas or, you know, really incredibly hot desert in Arizona, sandy places in Colorado. Every one of these camps was just placed in some of the worst parts of America. And and th- this camp at the base of Heart Mountain itself, it would the temperatures would drop to negative thirty in the winter. There'd be blizzards that could bury whole houses, and then into that situation, you drop 10,000 folks from Southern California who had never seen snow in their entire lives, didn't own a winter coat. Um, the barracks that were built there were constructed in an hour apiece with green wood so that they shrank by the time anyone was trying to move into them at the end of August. The first snow at Heart Mountain, that first fall in 1942, came in the second week of September. So folks had no real chance to acclimate personally or physically to winter conditions coming from, you know, San Diego or Los Angeles, these temperate climates, you know, and they have holes in their barracks. They're having to stuff them with newspaper and old pages from Sears robot catalogs. So it was just, um, you know, I, I talk about resistance when it comes to the draft, but I, whenever I think about this book, I think about the resilience of this entire community being sent to you know, being sent to to a place that was inhospitable, not only from a government standpoint, but from a, a, a weather and temperature standpoint every day that their lives were up, upended so quickly. Bradford Pearson, he's author of The Eagles of Heart Mountain, a true story of football, incarceration and resistance in World War II America. Remember that you can enjoy our Constant Wonder Conversations quite conveniently on demand or as a podcast. The place to learn more about us is byuradio.org. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.